Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. On a personal note, uh, it's painful for me to know that nearly every death we are seeing now from COVID-19 could have been prevented. I say that as someone who has lost 10 family members to COVID-19 and who wishes each and every day that they had had the opportunity to get vaccinated. With coronavirus cases on the rise, the U.S. Surgeon General issues a warning about the spread of misinformation online. The question is, what are social media companies doing to crack down? And is it enough? Plus, pushing ahead with infrastructure, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Senate will begin procedural votes on a bipartisan bill next week. The question is, how realistic is that deadline? And an 18-year-old is about to be the youngest person ever to go to space. Jeff Bezos has picked a student from the Netherlands to join his company's first space flight after the winning bidder pulled out due to a scheduling conflict. The question is, will that person try to get a $28 million refund? It's way too early for this. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that is really wondering how on earth, no pun intended, you double book something for the day that you're supposed to go to space. I mean, what? I am Casey Hunt on this Friday, July 16th. We made it. We'll start with the news. Fears are growing over a new COVID wave as cases climb and vaccination rates plateau. Now the nation's largest county, Los Angeles, is turning back the pandemic clock, issuing a new indoor mask mandate. NBC News correspondent Miguel Almaguer has the latest. Los Angeles, the nation's largest county, taking a step back, requiring masks indoors, even for the vaccinated effective Sunday. Impacting 10 million people here and breaking with CDC guidance, it's a clear signal concern is growing over the highly contagious Delta variant. Meantime, for some of the 48 million children under 12 and their parents who were hoping to get them vaccinated this fall, a longer wait. The FDA will now review several additional months of safety data, meaning a vaccine for kids won't likely be available until early next year. It makes it a very stressful time to be a parent, an educator, and a child. All schools should really have very strong contingency plans What are the metrics by which we would go back to virtual learning? What will we do to keep children and staff safe? While more than 4 million children have contracted COVID, less than 2% have been hospitalized and only a small fraction have died. But now our nation is bracing for a tidal wave of new infections as experts fear a new flood of COVID cases is just beginning to grip the country. We've exceeded last year's Um, peak. While outbreaks were expected in unvaccinated pockets of the nation, 98 million are still not inoculated. 40 states are seeing a rise in infections. At Yankee Stadium, positive COVID tests have forced the game against the Red Sox to be postponed. The Delta variant, a serious risk. 
it's going to find those pockets in each community where people aren't vaccinated, and it's going to do a lot of damage. That damage being done, and for the unvaccinated, including the youngest Americans, the worst may still be to come. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. And it's worth noting that CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky reiterated yesterday that her agency is not recommending that people who are fully vaccinated wear masks. Meanwhile, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Morthy, is issuing a warning about misinformation about COVID-19. Dr. Morthy released a Surgeon General's advisory yesterday declaring the rise of misinformation online an urgent threat and calling on social media companies to take action. Today, we live in a world where misinformation poses an imminent and insidious threat to our nation's health. Modern technology companies have enabled misinformation to poison our information environment with little accountability to their users. They've allowed people who intentionally spread misinformation, what we call disinformation, to have extraordinary reach. They've designed product features, such as like buttons, that reward us for sharing emotionally charged content, not accurate content, and their algorithms tend to give us more of what we click on, pulling us deeper and deeper into a well of misinformation. And at that same briefing, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that a large amount of misinformation is being spread by a relatively small number of people. There's about 12 people who are producing 65% of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms. All of them remain active on Facebook, despite some even being banned on other platforms, including Facebook, ones that Facebook owns. Hmm. Following those remarks, Facebook put out a statement reading, we've partnered with government experts, health authorities and researchers to take aggressive action against misinformation about COVID-19 and vaccines to protect public health. So far, we've removed more than 18 million pieces of COVID misinformation, removed accounts that repeatedly break the rules, and connected more than 2 billion people to reliable information about COVID-19 and COVID vaccines across our apps. And coming up on Morning Joe, the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Morthy, will be a guest later on this morning. Meanwhile, we're learning more about former President Donald Trump's reported cold interaction with Vice President Mike Pence hours before the January 6th Capitol attack began. The account is part of the upcoming book by Washington Post reporters Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker entitled I Alone Can Fix It. Let's set the scene. Early on January 6th, Trump called Pence, who was spending the morning at his Naval Observatory residence before heading to the Capitol. Pence again explained the legal limits on his authority as vice president and said that he planned to perform his ceremonial duty as prescribed by the Constitution. But Trump showed him no mercy. Quote, you don't have to make you don't have the courage to make a hard decision, he told Pence. At 2.10 p.m., the first rioter entered the Capitol by breaking a window and climbing inside. A stream of Trump warriors followed him. At the White House, Trump was back in his private dining room watching everything unfold on television. Aides, including Dan Scavino and Kayleigh McEnany, popped in and out. The president was riveted. His supporters had heeded his call to march on the Capitol with pride and boldness. For Trump, there was no more beautiful sight than thousands of energetic people waving Trump flags, wearing red MAGA caps and fighting to keep him in power. He thought, this is cool. He was happy, recalled one aide who was with Trump that afternoon. Then when it turned violent, he thought, oh, crap. As rioters marauded through the Capitol, it was clear who they were looking for. Some of them shouted, hang Mike Pence. And Trump didn't exactly throw them off the hunt. 
At 2.24 p.m., the president tweeted, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. Back at the White House, Keith Kellogg, the vice president's national security advisor, was worried about Pence's safety, and he went to find Trump. Is Mike okay? The president asked him. The Secret Service has him under control, Kellogg told Trump. Karen is there with the daughter. Oh, Trump asked. They're going to stay there until this thing gets sorted out, Kellogg said. Trump said nothing more. He didn't express any hope that Pence was okay. He didn't try to call the vice president to check on him. He just stayed in the dining room watching television. We should mention that this account has not been independently confirmed by NBC News. All right, joining us now, the author of The Washington Post's early morning newsletter, Power Up, Jacqueline Alemany. Jackie, good morning. It's always great to have you. Um, there, There's a lot there. Um, we knew some of these details, but this rich account in this new book uh, really underscores the iciness uh, of the relationship between Pence and Trump at the end here uh, and really shows, uh, I think, the um, degree to which the former president, Trump, simply uh, was enjoying watching what was happening at the Capitol. What what is your sense about how these new accounts may play into what we're going to see in the future, namely the select committee to investigate what happened? Yeah, Casey, and congratulations to, to Carol and Phil on this deeply reported and um, engrossing account of the final days of the Trump presidency. The sentence in that excerpt that stood up the most to me and was the most jarring was that uh, throughout the entire day, not, none of the military leaders or the officials handling the siege heard from the former president. Um, but you're exactly right. The timing of these, of, of actually several of these books about the final days of the Trump presidency and the, the, that last month uh, that includes, obviously, the insurrection on, on January 6th are coming out as, uh, you know, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is weighing whether or not he's going to appoint any uh, members to the select committee that is going to investigate the January 6th insurrection and just who those members might be. Uh, I know that the reporting has concerned some Republicans, although they're reticent to say so uh, publicly. It's it's definitely resurfaced a lot of concerns. And uh, I had one Republican actually tell me during an interview yesterday that it is it has prompted. Uh, this is Re Representative John Curtis of, of Utah, who actually voted in favor of establishing um, the commission, uh, who said that he still has lots of unanswered questions that he'd, he'd like to see. He doesn't necessarily think that the committee is the best form, but hopes that McCarthy engages with it. Um, Kevin McCarthy met with former President Trump yesterday at Bedminster. Uh, he put out a statement claiming that yeah. they didn't discuss this select committee. But uh, as these excerpts are rolling out and Trump is denying that he planned a coup of, of any sorts, um, I, I imagine that this was this this he, he I, this must have been on the top of his mind. It's hard to imagine that he didn't raise it with Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, I mean, I think we should just remember that statements that come from the president are not usually or often they are untrue. Um, Jackie, let's turn back to the pandemic uh, for a second, because this is clearly the, the main focus at the White House right now with the covid cases spiking uh, and the Surgeon General going and talking about the spread of misinformation on social media and how that's affecting uh, vaccination rates. Um, this has been a problem for a long time, but obviously the pandemic has raised the stakes 
enormously. And there's no clear solution, especially when the social media companies, Facebook, we saw that statement, they basically said, we're doing everything we can already. Yeah, and, and we know, Casey, from a Washington Post ABC News poll conducted recently um, that these messages are resonating with uh, Republican voters specifically. Um, 29% uh, of Americans say that they are less likely to get vaccinated. Um, how the Biden administration is going to handle this going forward as a substantial um block of the population is is unvaccinated and death rates are rising is is still unclear. They do have an office that is specifically battling this disinformation. Um, but uh, yeah, as you just noted, it, it's uh, it's hasn't been quite effective. And if anything, this has become a rallying cry for the GOP. We saw that at uh, the conservative um, political action conference uh, just last weekend with people like Madison Cawthorn and, and Lauren Boebert um, using it to underscore how the Biden administration is trying to trying to take away people's personal liberties. Um, so it is a, a political issue uh, that that that, you know, it, yeah. as much as a, a disinformation issue. Right. For sure. All right. The Washington Post, Jackie Alemany, thanks very much for getting up early with us this morning. We really appreciate it. And still ahead here, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy meets with former President Trump as he weighs whether to appoint Republicans to a committee that will investigate the January 6th insurrection. Plus, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos will be my guest as Senate Democrats set an ambitious new timeline for getting infrastructure passed. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back. Team USA has lost a member of its men's basketball roster. After inter entered coronavirus health and safety protocols on Wednesday, USA Basketball announced that starting guard Bradley Beal won't play in the Tokyo Games. Shortly after, Team USA announced forward Jeremy Grant has also been placed in the program's health and safety protocols. Coach Greg Popovich told reporters that Grant missing the games is unlikely at this point, but called the loss of Beal devastating. The team has not yet named a replacement. And late last night, USA Basketball called off tonight's exhibition game against Australia out of an abundance of caution. The team is still scheduled to play its warm-up against Spain on Sunday before traveling to Tokyo ahead of the opening game against France on July 25th. And the second half of the Major League regular season was supposed to begin with the classic rivalry between the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. But last night's post-All-Star break opener in the Bronx has been postponed after three New York pitchers tested positive for coronavirus, despite being fully vaccinated. And tonight's game is still up in the air as the Yankees await lab results for three additional players who are now in quarantine after testing positive on rapid tests. ESPN reports that those three include all-star outfielder Aaron Judge and third baseman Gio Urshela. 
Last night's game marks baseball's eighth COVID-related postponement so far this season, but it's the first in nearly three months. And the second round of the Open Championship is underway at Royal St. George's in England. The runner-up at golf's two last majors, Louis Oosthuizen, topped the leaderboard at the conclusion of the day. His six-under 64 tied the lowest-ever opening round on the course, which was set back in 1981. And 2017 champ Jordan Spieth is an open contender once again, finishing one shot off the lead yesterday in a tie for second with Brian Harmon. Meanwhile, long drive specialist Bryson DeChambeau could not power his way to the top of the leaderboard, shooting a one over 71 after hitting just four out of 14 fairways yesterday. After the round, DeChambeau blamed his poor performance on his golf club, telling reporters, quote, the driver sucks. (laughs) The comment did not sit well with one of his sponsors. A tour operations manager for Cobra Golf told Golf Week, quote, it's really, really painful when he says something that's stupid. Adding that DeChambeau, quote, has never really been happy. Oh, dear. The response prompted an apology from DeChambeau, who in a post on Instagram last night wrote in part, quote, the comment I made in my post-round interview today was very unprofessional. My frustration and emotions over the way I drove the ball today boiled over. I sucked today, not my equipment. Oh, boy. Okay. Time now for the weather. Let's go to meteorologist Bill Cairns for a check on the forecast. Bill, happy Friday. Happy Friday. You got to love brutal honesty, right? And then, uh, yeah, quickly backpedaling. All right. So um, let's go and get into this forecast. And before we hit the weekend weather, we got to take a look at what happened in Germany. Uh, The news out of Germany and Belgium and this flooding event, they're saying this could be the worst weather event in 70 years to hit the region. Uh, Upwards, the death toll is approaching almost 100 people. Uh, They're saying still hundreds are missing from these flash floods. Rivers overflowed their banks and just over overwhelmed these towns. I mean, look at these pictures. It looks like a hurricane hit. Uh, So, yeah, this story will be one that we'll be watching throughout the day today. So let's get to our forecast back here. Yeah, that's where the river was supposed to be. Let's get to our forecast in the lower 48. We are watching today some heavy rain in areas from Missouri through uh, Illinois. I-70 is not going to be a fun drive. And we will see isolated severe storms in the Ohio Valley. It won't be too bad. And then Saturday, all of this mess heads to the east. We're okay on the eastern seaboard Saturday morning, but by Saturday afternoon, afternoon, that's when the worst will come in. And we could see possibilities of one to three inches of rain. So this, the least thing we need, Casey, is another soaking rain event on the eastern seaboard. But that's going to be the case Saturday afternoon, and it lingers into Sunday. My apologies in advance. <laughs> I was so hoping that this forecast was going to change. Alas, Bill Karens, thank you as always. Try to enjoy that weekend despite the rain. Still ahead here, President Biden hosts German Chancellor Angela Merkel at the White House in an effort to restore the ties that were frayed by President Trump. We'll be back in just a moment. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back. President Biden bid farewell to German Chancellor Angela Merkel yesterday, who made her final visit to the White House before she's set to step down in September. Chancellor 
Merkel has been here frequently over the past 16 years. Matter of fact, she knows the Oval Office as well as I do. Madam Chancellor, I know that the partnership between Germany and the United States will continue to grow stronger on the foundation that you have helped to build. But on a personal note, I must tell you, I'll miss seeing you at our summits. I truly will. The relationship between Biden and Merkel is a stark contrast from the German chancellor's relationship with the former president, Donald Trump. Merkel was famously photographed standing over Trump, who had his arms crossed at the G7 summit in 2018. Ah, that picture. And there was this moment in 2017 when the former president appeared to snub her after reporters asked about a handshake between the two leaders. When asked yesterday to compare her relationships with the two presidents, Merkel smiled and said through a translator, quote, today was a very friendly exchange. Now to South Africa, a country that's reeling from violent protests following the arrest of former President Jacob Zuma. Zuma was president of the country for nearly a decade, and during his tenure, corruption allegedly swelled in the government. The allegations were investigated after he left office, and Zuma refused to testify. He was sentenced to 15 months in prison for contempt of court. Rioting and looting have gripped Zuma's home province, where the major cities of Johannesburg and Pretoria are located. South Africa's army began deploying 25,000 troops on Thursday to assist police. At least 117 people have died in the violence, and more than 2,000 have been arrested. All right, still ahead here, former Vice President Pence reportedly lost it with President Trump over a controversial hiring choice. Up next, we'll discuss that rift and more with the author of a new book on the final turbulent days of the Trump administration. But before we go to break, we want to know, as always, why are you awake? Email us your reasons for being up and watching to way too early at msnbc.com or drop me a tweet at Casey. Use the hashtag way too early and we'll read some of our favorite answers coming up later on in the show. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It is 5.30 here on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Casey Hunt. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy met with Donald Trump yesterday at the former president's Bedminster, New Jersey, golf club while weighing which members of his conference to appoint to the Special Committee on the Capitol Insurrection. In a statement via a spokesman after the meeting, McCarthy said he and Trump, quote, discussed House Republicans' record fundraising, upcoming congressional special elections, and vulnerable Democrats. I look forward to working together to build upon our success in 2020. I appreciate President Trump's commitment to help House Republicans defeat Democrats and take back the House in 2022. We should point out that Republicans made gains in the House, but President Trump lost. There was no word on any discussion of the select committee. Joining us now, senior White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Michael C. Bender. He is the author of a new book on the final days of the Trump administration titled, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost. Uh, Mike, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for being up early uh, with us today. Um, I want to talk about Mike Pence for a second because uh, you did some reporting on that in your book, and he's also uh, in the spotlight uh, for some other uh, reporting uh, here um, from uh, our colleague and friend, uh, Phil Rucker and his co-writer, Carol Lenig. The president, meanwhile, seems extraordinarily upset, the former president, I should say, uh, that he participated in interviews with any of you uh, at all. Uh, But walk us through uh, what you reported uh, about Mike Pence and some hiring decisions and how the relationship between those two men basically fell apart in the final days. 
Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, Casey. I've, I've uh, always admired uh, how hard you worked and the pr- results you produced. And, and uh, you know, having me back on this morning is just another reminder about what a consummate pro you are, pro- professional you are. So thank you. <laughs> Um, I, I really yes, we did uh, promise people I, I yesterday you were going to be here. So thank you for coming back. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I think one of the, 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 the things that I'm excited about this book is, is heading into 2024 here. There are, there are obviously still a lot of questions about what President Trump is going to do. But the other Republicans around him, including Mike Pence and another one, uh, Ron DeSantis. And uh, the, one of the through lines of the book here is some battling they have in Florida over one of Trump's top aides, Susie Wiles, who I would argue after Jeb Bush from 2000 to 2010 is maybe the most important Republican uh, in Florida over the past decade. Well, uh, she's fired from the campaign in September and no one will tell Trump why for months. And it falls to Mike Pence in a meeting in the summer of 2020 to tell Trump that it's basically over 2024 jockeying. Susie Wiles is close to Rick Scott who's also been talked about as another 2024 contender. Uh, He tells Trump that DeSantis is uh, trying to knock her out in order to take a step ahead of Rick Scott. Uh, And not surprisingly, this sort of uh, uh, sits well with Trump. He kind of understands that. But calls DeSantis, says, uh, you know, what's going on? I want Susie back. Uh, Well, DeSantis tells him that Susie Wiles is basically a bat boy uh, on his team. And, and this is what really infuriates Trump. Uh, Trump wants to make the decision here. And in a, in a heated over, Oval Office meet, uh, hmm. phone call, uh, Trump tells DeSantis, this is my decision. Stay out of it. Yeah, it's Susie Wiles is a name that, you know, some of our viewers uh, may know may know her name for those that don't. I mean, she, as you point out, is an extraordinarily important wired in operative uh, in Florida, which is, of course, has been for so long such a critical uh, part of the uh, the presidential landscape and map that it's it's very yeah. telling that that's all underway already. Yeah, that's right. She, was, um, Michael, she ran uh, Rick Scott's campaign. Yeah, go ahead. She ran Rick Scott's campaign in 2010 when he was an outsider. She came in and saved Ron DeSantis's campaign. Uh, when he was behind in the polls in, in Florida, uh, she won Florida twice for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, it's the only state Trump won twice and improved his margins in. So she's a pretty key figure, uh, not in, just yeah. in Florida and Republican world, uh, but, in, but in Trump world, too. And I, some new reporting I can share with you, Casey, is that there are a lot of people in Trump world who openly wondered with me, had Susie been in charge of the whole campaign in 2020, maybe they would have won. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting heading into 2024 again, especially because we uh, we have people close to Trump who are uh, questioning Ron DeSantis's judgment right now. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Uh, Mike, quickly, let me ask you about yeah. uh, General Milley, another figure who's been uh, in the news the last day or so. Uh, you write about how angry he was after the Lafayette Square incident. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, there was... Uh, Millie has to apologize because he's 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 kind of, he was goes to the White House in June on a lark. Uh, he, he doesn't have a meeting and he ends up in one of the most controversial uh, photo ops uh, really in modern American political history. A few days later, he has to apologize for that in a graduation speech. Um, and, uh, you know, which is no small thing, uh, especially for President Trump. Trump confronts him a few days later in the Oval Office over this. Uh, and says, I, I can't believe you apologized. It makes you look weak. Why would you do that? I don't understand. 
And Millie, in a meeting again with, with multiple people in the room, tells the president, I wouldn't expect you would understand. Remarkable. All right. The book is, frankly, we did win this election, the inside story of how Trump lost. Michael Bender, Michael C. Bender, I should say, uh, thank you so much for being with us. You should try to sneak in a nap. <laughs> All right. Still ahead here, the totally different crew set to make history in Amazon's expansion to outer space. Don't go anywhere. Way too early. Back in just a moment. Welcome back. Time now for something totally different. A Dutch teenager will join Jeff Bezos in space next week as Blue Origin's first paying customer. At 18 years old, Oliver Damon will become the youngest person to travel to space. He secured the position after the original winner of Blue Origin's auction for the spot postponed the trip, get this, because of scheduling conflicts. Damon will ride alongside the Amazon founder, his brother, Mark Bezos, and pilot Wally Funk, who at 82 will also set a record as the oldest person to travel to space. I love her story. The rocket is set to blast off on July 20th. But seriously, who double books their trip to space? There's something here that just like doesn't add up. I feel like there's more to this story. All right, still ahead here. Democrats' new deadline for passing infrastructure bills in the Senate. Congresswoman Sherry Bustos will weigh in. Don't go anywhere. Way too early is coming right back. To quote our dear friend, former Senator and current President Joe Biden, this is a big effing deal. <laughs> One of the biggest effing deals that's been passed in decades and decades. That was Majority Leader Chuck Schumer celebrating the first of the newly extended child tax credit payments that are going out to millions of Americans nationwide. Schumer, meanwhile, is setting an ambitious timetable to get both infrastructure bills, get both infrastructure bills to the Senate floor for a vote. He is planning to hold a key procedural vote next week, setting a tight deadline for lawmakers that are still negotiating key measures like how it will be funded. Republican lawmakers working on the bipartisan infrastructure bill say the fast timeline may cost Democrats support from the GOP. I'm not going to vote yes if we don't have a product. So if the bill's not done, you won't vote yes. Yeah, we're going to get it right. The bipartisan plan will only be successful if it's paid for without raising taxes and without adding to the debt. And I will only vote for it if we get there. All right. Joining us now, member of the House Appropriations Committee, Democratic Congresswoman Sherry Bustos of Illinois. Congresswoman, uh, it's great to see you. I don't know if it's too early to start uh, the smack talk about softball, which is coming up in a month or two. Uh, but let's start uh, with politics. Early for that. <laughs> uh, the congressional women's softball game, I should be clear for all of our viewers. Um, let's talk about the infrastructure bills. Um, you represent a district that, frankly, has has changed quite a bit uh, with uh, the, the passing of the Trump uh, presidency over the years. It's a swing district. Um, that has tilted uh, Republican. I'm curious what you think the reaction to this uh, this legislation, this plan is going to be among your constituents, especially considering that right now there's a plan to spend quite a bit of money on this reconciliation bill. Do you think at the end of the day it's going to help Democrats hang on to the House if they pass this legislation? Or do you think they potentially risk a backlash? I can count um, like this. That is zero. How many times that somebody I've run into at the grocery store or when I go to the farmer's market that have mentioned the word reconciliation. Um, but I can also tell you that when I'm driving to the grocery store or to the farmer's market or to a 
family farm down the uh, down the road a bit. Um, the the crumbling roads, the potholes that are enormous. Uh, they they want results, and, and that is it. Yeah, I, I I am a Democrat in a in a Trump district, but but, but people just want to see something get done. And I, I want to say to, to Chuck Schumer, good for you for setting a deadline. And for, for the Republicans, and I don't care who they are, who are saying, um, you know, let, we can't move too fast on this. Well, really, you know what? We need to move on this. Uh, it, it has become status quo that we have this, this crumbling infrastructure, uh, roads and bridges that are long, long overdue for repair and rebuild and uh, you know, the flooded out subways, uh, play, uh, you know, that where the subways go in New York. We don't have those in my district. But, uh, we, Casey, we've got to get this done. And, and I think if there is a, a word that we need to focus on between now and the election in 2022, it's results. And, um, and I think we're ready to deliver on those. Congresswoman, would you like to see Speaker Pelosi put the bipartisan piece of the infrastructure deal on the House floor for a final vote uh, before um, the reconciliation package is finished? I mean, do you think she should move forward quickly on that, assuming that Democrats also get those instructions for the bigger bill out the door? Uh, you know, I uh, again, whatever the order is, um, what 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 the Senate does, what the House does, what goes first, what goes second. Um, I, I think what we have to do is, uh, I, I don't want to get in this situation. I was not in Congress when uh, the, the debate on the Affordable Care Act was going on. In fact, I was working in healthcare at the time. And uh, uh, it, the, the stories that, that folks who have been here for a little while talk about is how uh, the, the folks on the other side of the aisle kept asking for more and more and more and kind of stringing everybody along as if they were going to get on on board. Um, and then in the end, the, the Democrats kept giving and giving and giving and the Republicans never got on board. So I, again, I think we need, we need to have a package that is going to serve the American public well. Uh, and, and that is, you know, the, the president Biden has been talking about the so-called soft infrastructure, but what it is is about making sure that our families can succeed, that the middle class can succeed. You know, the, uh, the child tax credit, that for folks who looked at their bank account yesterday who have uh, children at home, uh, the, the vast majority of American families got a little extra help yesterday. That was because of the Democrats. That is going to be one of the greatest lifters out of poverty for children in the history of our nation. And uh, so those are the kind of things that not only do we need to talk about and, and you know, whatever the back uh, the backstory is on the strategy, we just have to get it, get it done. All right. Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, thank you so much uh, for getting up early with us. We really appreciate having you on the show this morning and uh, see you soon, I hope. (laughs) Don't practice too hard. (laughs) All right. Earlier on in the show, we asked all of you, why are you awake? We got this note from Janet. She writes, I'm trying to figure out if the pattern on your shirt is little coffee beans, which tells you something about my relationship with being awake. I don't think they're coffee beans, but, you know, we could just call it that because I'm with you. George says... (laughs) Every day is Friday when you're retired, and that's why I'm up way too early. Indeed. Thanks for watching. Randy tweeted this. I can't think of another activity that surpasses going to space at the cost of $28 million. 
Sounds like someone got cold feet. I'm not judging because I would be on edge too. It is fair enough, but you're, uh, yes, Randy, I completely agree. <laughs> All right, coming up next, the latest in the efforts by Texas Democrats to block a GOP-backed voting bill. And coming up on Morning Joe, we're going to hear from members of the Martin Luther King family on the push to pass federal protections for voting rights. Plus, a check-in with the nation's doctor. Surgeon General Vivek Morthy joins the conversation amid concern over the dangers of health misinformation as coronavirus cases continue to rise across the country. Morning Joe, just moments away. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.